So Pastor Neil says, I bet you can't get up there and not talk about pigs. <laughs> oh, I blew it. <laughs> I am going to talk about my children. I don't think so. Say that so we can get back to the rest of the kids and we don't talk about it. Um, so I'm going to just talk to you about a couple of my kids. I'm just going to tell you a couple of quick stories. Some of y'all don't know me, and so some of you have heard these stories. If you've heard them, just bear with me. I'm getting old, and we old people do that. We repeat our stories because it's all we got, right? So. No, those are, no you love your stories, Pastor Yes, we, we have stories. So I'm going to tell you, I have a son whose name is Sam, and Sam is... Um, Hilarious. Just ask him, he will tell you he's hilarious. But most of the time, he's hilarious when he's not intending to be hilarious, he's hilarious accidentally. When Sam was about four, and our youngest Claire was younger than, I don't know, Sam was probably about six or seven or something, but they were little, and um, Sam says to Claire, this is around Christmas time, he says, hey Claire, you want to play Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer? You can be Rudolph. And she said, well, yeah, okay. And he says, okay, I'm going to laugh at you and call you names. <laughs> and she says, well, I don't want to play. And he says, oh, no, I'm not going to let you play. <laughs> <laughs> Some of you are just getting it. <laughs> and, and, and I'm going to tell you a story about Claire. Claire is... Um, Precocious, she's the youngest having, and she's pretty. She was pretty much convinced that the rest of us just got here to make things ready for her. <laughs> That's the way she lives her life. So one time, Claire and I were. Um, uh, I was going to. I was working on the pool, and she was kind of hovering around behind me. And uh, I had to go to the pool store to get some chemicals for the pool. And I said, "Hey, Claire, you want to go to the store with me?" And she said, "Yeah, sure. That'll be fun, Daddy." She's probably eight or nine. Some, some, some age younger than now. And, uh, and she goes in and she gets her purse. Now, the store that we're going to is about a mile away from our house. And there's nothing between our house and the store. And so I said, Claire, you, you don't need a purse. And she said, but Daddy, my stuff's in it. I said, well, you don't need your stuff. First of all, your age. You don't need stuff. And you're only going a mile away. And she's oh, okay, Dad. So we're driving down the road, and I look over at Claire, my sweet little girl, and her lips have got this stuff on. The kind of stuff you would find in a purse. And I look over, and I said, Claire, now, please, what is on your lips? And she says, oh, it's just chapstick, Daddy. <laughs> Now, I was born in the morning, but it wasn't that morning, right? <laughs> I know that there, it was more than just chapstick. And so I say, Claire, honey, you're, you're too young to have the shiny stuff on your lips. I, 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 don't, I don't want you doing that. And we had a little bit of a talk about why little girls should not try to look like older girls or girls who wear shiny things on their lips. And so she says, okay, Daddy. So she's being a sweet kid. She's looking around. And I'm like, what are you looking for, Claire? She says, well, I'm looking for a napkin or something to wipe this off with. And we're in my truck. I thought, well, I don't, I don't have anything to wipe it off with. I have one in my purse. 
was about three, Abigail's sitting right here, so she's going to be embarrassed in a moment and feed into that. Use it for your advantage. Um, she came out and she had on a pink tutu, pink leg covering stockings, I'm not sure whether tights or something like that, pink slippers, a pink shirt, a pink boa, and a pink thing in her head. A tiara, I think it was, pink. And they were all pink, and they were all different pinks. <laughs> and they were different, like, the textures and patterns, and it was really something to behold. And so, Abby comes out, and she says, Daddy, what do you think of my outfit? Right? Now, I know enough as a father to know that I could crush my little girl right here if I said, Honey, that's terrible. Nothing matches. And so I'm trying to not lie, <laughs> but also be encouraging. And so I said, well, honey, that's a lot of pain. <laughs> and Abby says, thank you. <laughs> All of those stories are absolutely 100% true. <laughs> so this is what I live with. So if, if I appear to not be fully sane, that's, that's good. Okay, so, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you have called us, you have created us to be your image bearers. You have called us out of the world so that we can go into the world, loving the world, ministering to the world, showing you to the world by being your people. Father, we don't always do that well. We don't always do it as we ought. But we know that you are with us. That you are uh, never leaving. You never leave us. You never forsake us. You always are working in us uh, to do according to your will. And so, Father, we pray that you would, even in this hour, um, help us to come to a deeper understanding of who we are and how we are to live in the world. Uh, we pray that you would do this uh, for us and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. 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 So we did a bit of work yesterday on <coughs> metaphysics. What we were doing yesterday was essentially metaphysics. It wasn't the, the deepest metaphysics, it wasn't the most technical metaphysics, but that's what we were doing. We were talking about the nature of reality. That's what metaphysics is. We talk specifically about ourselves, or why we're here, and what we're for. Namely, we are here for the purpose of filling the world with the glory of God by being His image bearers in the world. That's why we exist. That's why you are here. Now, some people read this as a charge to go out and tell the world what the world is supposed to do. And this is largely because we have, in our tradition, intellectualized our faith. Our faith is uh, an exercise in having the right opinions about God and having the right theology. And of course, having the right theology, having the right opinions, is good and proper. There's no virtue in having wrong opinions or a bad understanding. But if we boil our faith down to 
propositions that exists only in our minds and in our in, in our and in our mouths without penetrating our hearts, then we become clanging gongs and crashing cymbals. Though what we do and the how we do it flows from the why we exist. So going back to the beginning for just a moment, God created us to be his image in the world in order that we would fill the world up with the glory of God. And in Genesis 1, he tells this to us in a series of positive commands. He says things. He says, do this. He says, be fruitful. Multiply. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Have dominion over it. And eat. Those are the things he told us to do. Now, as an aside, in the in the new in new creation, the new creation cultural mandate, which we find in the Great Commission, has the same elements in it. Uh, we are to fill the world. We are to disciple the nations, filling it with the gospel and filling it with the declaration and the demonstration of the lordship of Jesus Christ, who is the true man the icon of God. We are to, to take Christ into all of the world and we are to, uh, to subdue it, to bring it into subjection, even though, even, even as Christ now is putting all things in subjection under his feet and we are his agency in that. Having dominion, we rule and reign with our Lord and we are declaring to the world that they are to obey all of the commandments of our Lord. And we also eat in new creation. The food that is spoken of is uh, the bread from heaven. Uh, we eat true bread and true drink in the kingdom. Now, in Genesis 2, we also have a negative command. We have a, uh, a, a negative uh, uh, a command given in the negative, and we read this. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, in the positive commands, God is telling man what it looks like for him to be what he was created to be. In the negative command, God is warning man against not walking according to his creational design. If you do this thing, if you take into yourself what is contrary to your purpose, at least in the early going, if you walk contrary to the way that I have created you to walk in, it will wreck you. Precisely because it is going to knock you off course. Now, why is God concerned with telling us what to do? Why is God concerned with telling us what to not do? It's simply this. So that we will know. So that we will know what we're supposed to do and so that we will know how to do it or what not to do. The, es the ethics of the Bible, which is, ethics is basically principles of conduct, right conduct. This is how you, how you ought to live. The principles of how we are to conduct ourselves in the world. All of this presupposes the metaphysical. Our reason for being, our purpose. 
So if we don't have the purpose in place, then all of the ethics is just a bunch of rules. It's random. But if it's tied to our purpose, then it makes a whole lot of sense. When God gives law, when God gives commands, and this is so important, He is not giving us a performance test to see if we really, really mean it. The view that law makes, uh, that law is a means of righteousness, that we can earn righteousness by the law, is deadly. Moral performance, law keeping, as a means of righteousness, never works out. That's not why the law was given to us. It's dangerous because we may be tempted to think that we're righteous because of our, our net righteousness score, as Pastor Bradley was talking about yesterday. And it's also dangerous because it becomes the means by which we judge others for their failure to live up to our ideal of the performance standard. But law, the law that God gives us, rules, ethics, commands, however you want to say it, is not a means to righteousness, but rather it reveals and expresses righteousness. The law reveals God to us. The law expresses God's righteousness to us so that we will know. When God gives the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, what, what, what is that all about? Listen, listen to this. I'm going to go ahead and read that. And the Lord and God spoke these words, saying, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God, and on it you shall do no work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days Yahweh made the heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his, his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. These are the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, the Decalogue. What is God doing at Sinai? What's going on at Sinai? Well, 
It could be, it could be that he's giving a set of rules that his people have to follow. This is just this wooden code of things, here are things that you, you, you must do. Or it could be something deeper than that. In the Decalogue, and ultimately through the whole law, Yahweh is revealing himself. He is revealing his character to Israel, who are his covenant people. And he is telling them, this is what it looks like to be like me. This is what it looks like to be my people, to be married to me, to be joined to me. In all the law, what we have is neither a system of works by which someone can attain righteousness, nor a wooden code of conduct. What we have is a way of being which comports with our created purpose. Anybody who's known me for very long knows that my favorite psalm is the first one, Psalm 1. I cannot overestimate or overstate the value of Psalm 1. Listen to what we read. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. The person who delights in the law, the person who meditates in the law, is the person who is successful, the person who, who actually succeeds in his created purpose. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. Or we could say, the way of the righteous is the way that the Lord knows, the way that the Lord declares, the way that the Lord has set. But the way, the path, the manner of being of the wicked will perish. It's not merely blessings for keeping the rules and punishment for disobeying the rules. That's part of it, right? That God gives rules, we, we obey the rules. But if we look at it just in this wooden way, that if I do good, God's going to be kind to me, and if I do bad, God's going to be mean to me, it's kind of like the equivalent of thinking that keeping mom and dad's rules is going to uh, get you a piece of pie, and not keeping the rules is going to get you a woman. Right? It's just to, to flatten it out, to truncate it for a whooping. Yes, we were talking about whippings yesterday. Somebody calls it a whooping. I remember when I was a kid, my grandma used to call it a licking. They're going to get a licking. I don't want you to lick That's weird, Grandma. <laughs> There's something deeper at work here. There's a way of talking about the law, God's commands, that is about keeping it or not. But there's also a way of thinking about the law in terms of what's underneath the law. And we talked about the metaphysics of it from one angle. Here's another angle which comports with the first. 
When I talked about why God created everything yesterday, I said that God created everything as an act of love. God created as an act of love. He created matter and time and light as an expression of sharing himself with an other. It was an act of love that he created the world, and it was an act of love that he recreated the world in his son Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. When we think of the ethics of the kingdom, the ethics of the kingdom of God, we find that love undergirds every bit of it. Love is the motivation. Love is what drives the law. In Matthew 23, 35 and following, one of the Pharisees, a lawyer, said to Jesus, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend everything in the Law and the Prophets. All the revelation of God hinges on the idea of us loving the Lord our God with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, with all of our minds, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Now, what does that mean? What is love? What isn't love? Or what is love not? Love is not butterflies in your stomach when she walks by you and you smell that stuff in her hair. That's not love. It might feel like love. You might like it a whole lot and you may get it confused with love, but that's, that's not love. It may be part of it, but that's not love. Love is not extreme like I just really, 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 really like it. So I'll call it love. It's, it's attained to enough realities that it's love. Love is not extreme like. Love is not any other emotion. Our emotions are involved in love, but our feelings are not love. Love is not a feeling. Love is bigger than our feelings. <coughs> love is what we read of in 1 Corinthians 13. It's patient. It doesn't envy or boast. I mean, it doesn't begrudge you having something that I don't have. It doesn't brag about me having something that you don't have. That's not how love operates. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It's not, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. This is what love is. This is how we are to be toward one another. When we love one another, when we love our neighbor as ourself, it looks like that.
Love, very often, is a dedication and a commitment to set aside your own feelings for the good of another. Love for God is described by Jesus as obedience. Living according to His commands. Living according to His law, His precepts, His rules, etc. Love for neighbor is described in terms of laying down your life for another. Setting aside your own desires. Setting aside your own agenda for the good of others. When we say we love God, but are disobedient to His commands, we are saying two opposite and contradictory things. If you say you love God and are disobedient to His commands, you are being contradictory, self-contradictory. Love for God looks precisely like obedience to His ways. It looks like being like Him in His character. It means wanting to be like Him. It means that we are dedicated in heart and soul and mind to walking according to His way, to imaging Him forth in the world. That is what it means to love God. And so the person who loves the Lord loves the law not because he is a religious lawyer, but because the law reveal, reveals the Lord to him. And he is consumed by it. Heart, soul, and mind. He is consumed with the idea of walking according to the way of Yahweh. He will not and cannot walk in the counsel of the wicked. He will not and cannot stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the scoffers because so, so allergic to that is he that it appears to him as death. Um, Pastor Neil gave an example of him telling someone to go out into the street, uh, take off his clothes and walk up and down the street uh, without his clothes on. And the guy refused. Uh, and his reason was, shame. I'm not going to be exposed in that way. This is our relationship to the wall. I would rather walk down the street naked than disobey the law of God. It, it, there's this visceral reason why this person could not do what he was asked to do. I can't do it because the consequences are too great. That's how we ought to interact with the law. Come with us. We are going to violate God's law. No. Anyway. Often when we interact with the law and God's commandments, we look at it more like a code of conduct than instruction in righteousness. Often we'll say things to ourselves that excuse our lack of attention and obedience to the Lord. Things like, well, it's just too hard. It's too, it's too big complete, to completely uh, uh, obey. Nobody obeys it. We're sinners. And so we make these excuses for ourselves. And then we imagine that God is going to make excuses for us too. Surely God is going to believe, uh, forgive me because he knows deep down I really do love him. And, and I'm a pretty good person. And besides that, I'm not justified by obedience. I'm justified by faith. So there Remember that rather than making a statement of our faith, 
we are revealing our unbelief. We are revealing our lack of confidence in God and in His Word to direct us in the way that we should go. We're not delighting in the law. We are despising the law. Which, if I may say it even more strongly, such attitudes do not reflect love for God. Such attitudes show hatred for Him. In 1 John 5, verses 1-5, through 5, we read, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commands. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. Do you love God? Keep His commandments. And His commandments, John says, are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. We believe God. We, we trust that His way is true, that His way is right, and the other way is the way of death. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Love for God is keeping His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. They are a delight. The righteous man delights in God's law. We look to the law and we find in it the way of being, the way that the way of life, the way to life, and we, we see that it's good. Someone asked me yesterday, we were talking about memorizing Scripture. And you should already have Psalm 1 memorized, and if you don't, put that on your docket for the next thing that you do. Right? Before dinner, memorize Psalm 1. It's not hard. Um, there's a chant in the Constance Christi. You can look it up and chant, learn to chant it. It's very easy. Um, get that in your head. But if you want a little more significant challenge, memorize Psalm 119. <laughs> Yeah, well, oh. <laughs> Listen, Pastor Jeffrey was challenging us to memorize the whole Bible. You can do Psalm 119, it's part of it. Right? Uh, but so there's a structure. There's a there's a structure that will help you. But what happens when you're when you learn Psalm 119, you're learning to love the Lord. You're seeing that the law is good. God's commandments are are pure and righteous altogether. They are the way of life. They enable us, they empower us to believe God. So that's the first thing. The second thing that Jesus said is just as important. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, compared to this, keeping the first one might seem easy. Because the people around you, the people that you have to relate with, the people that smell like they smell, the people that say the things they say, the people that do the things they do, the people that irritate you, these are the ones that you have to love. You have to love the person who's actually sitting next to you. You have to love the person who you share a house with. You have to love the people that you're in church with. You have to love the people that you know. And that's hard. It's easy to love God, but it's very difficult to love these people. I mean, look at them. 
We think we can love God because He's perfect and pure and He never really causes us any trouble like that. But the guy next to us is the one who really tests things. But in 1 John 4.20, this is anticipated. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. If you don't love your brother, you cannot love God. Oh, snap. If only we could be righteous in some other way. You see, somehow, the way we love, or the way that we do not love our brother, is an indicator of our love for God. Loving our brother, loving our neighbor, is very much how we carry out our created purpose. All the metaphysical stuff, the why we are here, this is what it looks like. It looks like loving our brother. Our telos, our purpose, our metaphysical design is to image God forth in the world, to fill up the world with, the Im- with his image and to rule with him. He who does not love does not know God. He who does not love does not know God. Thereby missing our metaphysical point. And the reason that we don't know God if we don't love is because God is love. When we go back and look at the law of the Old Testament, it's very much concerned about rightly loving God and rightly loving our neighbor. And what we learn from Jesus and what makes it so difficult is this love very often requires something of us that we don't want to give. It requires that we sacrifice for others. That we don't get what we want so that we can serve our brother. It means that we suffer. And we don't want to suffer. We live in a culture that is so bent on alleviating sulfur, uh, sulfur, that's right, <laughs> suffering. Maybe I should the sulfur. <laughs> no, no, it's not. Uh, uh, we, we are so uh, against suffering that we're all about creating products and, 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 and services that are designed to alleviate our suffering. If we have any, any ill, any suffering, the culture is eager to tell you, you don't have to suffer, we can fix that for you, here, buy our stuff. And we become convinced that suffering is this great evil, the thing to be avoided at all costs. Listen to the content of your prayers. Help me to not suffer. Help me to not have this bad feeling. Help my owie to heal. Help me to to feel better. Help so-and-so to feel better. Help them to not be suffering. Now, as we pointed out yesterday, Jesus is the true human. He is the true image bearer of God, which means that we know how to be human by looking at Jesus. We also know that the life of Jesus was very much a life of suffering. 
His suffering was the pathway to glory. Let us look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising or disregarding the shame of it. For the joy that was set before him, for the glory that was to come, he endured suffering. He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. The life of Jesus is very much a life of suffering. His suffering was the path to glory. It was the means of obedience. It was the outgrowth and outpouring of his love for the Father and for us. This is how Jesus loved us. He laid down his life for us. Philippians 2, um, I'm sure you've heard this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and has given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory, to the glory of God the Father. This is how he made the Father known. When we behold Jesus, we behold the Father. When we see Jesus, we see God. An old preacher that uh, I listened to once said, if the Father is not just like the Son, he's not nearly the God that he could be. When we behold Jesus, we behold God. And when we behold Jesus, we understand why we are here. We understand how to be what we were made to be. We fulfill our created purpose when we are like Christ, who, motivated by love, laid down his life for us. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. John 15 says, this is my, Jesus says, this is my commandment. This is what I'm telling you. This is how you ought to live. That you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. The ethics of the kingdom of heaven the ethics of the church, the ethics of Christians, 
is the ethics that flow from our created purpose to image God forth in the world. And our created purpose is most clearly seen and demonstrated in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, very God of very God, and He is also the true man. And the true man is a suffering man, a self-sacrificing man. This is the ethics of the kingdom. But Jesus is also glorified man. Jesus is also the one who makes God known everywhere. He reveals God to the cosmos and he reveals God to us. That, that is our ethic. We are made and we are called to be like him. Now, think about your life. Think about your habits. Think about what you value. Think about what you aspire to. Think about what you love. And ask yourself, what needs to shift? Am I made for TikTok? Am I made for frittering away hours on my phone? Am I made to have the awesome life? Am I made to be awesome? Am I made to be the center of my universe? Or is there something else? Meditate on these things. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, thank you.